At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. What is rarely talked about is how literally debilitating actual confinement is. It is so often cruel, it's so often brutal, it's so often violent, and it's always unforgiving. That's Steve Martin. No, not the comic. This Steve Martin is a former prison guard from Texas who went on to become a leading prison reform advocate in America. He's also the co-author of Texas Prisons, The Walls Came Tumbling Down. I met him when he was appointed to oversee reforms at New York City's Rikers Island Jail, and he's featured in my new book, Doing Justice. I speak with him about the state of incarceration in this country, how we got here, and what needs to change. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. What is justice? How is it served? Who wields it? How is it accomplished? And when does it fail? These are some of the questions and moral quandaries that I wrestle with in my new book, Doing Justice, A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law. It came out last week, and I'm happy to report that it's been well-received, which is a great relief to mom and dad and me. Doing Justice is at its core about timeless principles that can help us understand this moment in history. It's also a book of stories, Stories of the unsung heroes who have dedicated their lives to ensuring that justice is done and have inspired me greatly. As a first-time author, I've learned that the success of a book can depend on early sales. I hope you'll order your copy, also available as an audiobook, at doingjusticebook.com or any local bookstore. Thank you to everyone who has shown your support, and now let's get to your questions. Hi, Bree. This is Alice Hankins in North Carolina. Congratulations on your Doing Justice book. I'm having a great time listening to your reading of that. Make a promise, please, namely that uh, Attorney General Preet Bharara will release the entirety of the Mueller report in January 2021, because I I think we're still going to be fighting about that by then. Uh, More seriously, maybe a question that you could answer, um, on your theory of doing the right thing for in the right way for the right reasons if you were the attorney general of the united states uh, how would you go about the mechanics of deciding uh, what parts of the Mueller report can be released to congress and the public uh, now and soon thanks bye ellis thanks for your question it's in fairness 
a difficult thing a little bit being on the outside of uh, government and trying to make an assessment of the conduct of people who are in government who have access to information that we don't have access to. And I try to be fair about that. So on the question of, of how I think the best way to release information contained in the Mueller report is the following. First, you need to make sure that the rhetoric matches the reality. So if you engage in the rhetoric of transparency and you say repeatedly that you want to make as much information public as possible within legal limits, then I think you need to move very quickly and assiduously to do that. I do think there may be legitimate reasons why you have to take care to deal with grand jury information that's sensitive and classified information, which is also sensitive. But the most important thing with things like this is how much of a priority you make it. And so to the extent personnel are required, you need to bring them in. You need to make sure that a lot of folks are assigned to the process. The process to me would involve in a significant way the participation of folks on the Mueller team themselves. Nobody has a better understanding of which bits of information come from sources that need to be protected or which bits of information come from grand jury disclosures that need to be protected and perhaps redacted and fought about later. I was a little bit concerned when I read that Bill Barr, in constructing his summary letter, appears not to have consulted with Bob Mueller and did not provide Bob Mueller with his summary to ask him, do you agree in substance that this is an accurate reflection of what your report determined. I think that would have been an easy thing to do. I think it would have given people a lot more comfort in the accuracy of the summary letter, even though it's you know short, uh, but he didn't do that. And so I think an important thing for people to have confidence that the reasons why there is some delay in releasing the entire Mueller report is based on good faith considerations of grand jury information or derogatory information against potentially innocent parties and or classified information. And I worry given the rhetoric coming out of the president and out of the mouths of other people, that there's a, a feeling of vindictiveness and gloating going on, rather than trying to provide a full accounting of what the special counsel himself found, rather than you know some spin, arguably, on the part of the hand-picked attorney general of the president, who, by the way, has a track record of having seemed to have anticipated this argument of obstruction and had a prejudged view of whether or not the president could be guilty of obstruction, uh, committed a crime of obstruction. I think it's not a good look. So with respect to the mechanics, I would assemble a serious team with a lot of personnel who I can trust, who are coordinating and consulting with the Mueller folks. Then I would do everything possible to make sure that the public could have faith that I'm proceeding in the way best designed to allow transparency and to allow full disclosure of the report. And I, I don't have any indication, but there's not any reason why we would know. If in this process of trying to prepare the report for public release, they're involving people on the Mueller team. Those are the folks that have been working on it for 22 months. Those are the folks who know the ins and outs of all the conclusions and factual recitations that would be in the report. And those are folks who should be involved in the dissemination of it. Hello, Preet. I'm just a person, but it seems like this Barr report is just a, a way of uh, a delaying the actual report coming out. It's eventually going to come out, uh, but it's a, it's a it's a delay tactic, it seems to me. Um, what would be the, the benefits of a delay? Thank you so much, Preet. Enjoy your show. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, you're just a person. So am I. So, so are all of us. That's all we can aspire to be, just people, right? And I make that point repeatedly in my book, actually. So on this question of the purpose of the letter, the summary, and is it you know operating to delay the release of the report, I want to say one thing in fairness to... Bill Barr, which people haven't 
really said a lot. To the extent there is a good faith reason, and I don't know if that's true yet, but to the extent there is a good faith reason for delaying slightly the release of the Mueller report because of classified information or ongoing investigations or grand jury material, and that would take some days, and hopefully not weeks or months, but some days, I actually credit Bill Barr with trying to provide something to the public. I don't like the way he went about it, and I think some things have maybe been spun a little bit in the letter, but you know, he is to be commended in a way for putting something out within two days. Because imagine if the Mueller report is delivered on, on that Friday at 5 p.m. and the Attorney General and the Justice Department went radio silent while they were thinking about ways to make a larger part of the Mueller report public, I think people would have howled and people would have gotten very angry and people would have rightfully thought, well, now something is really amiss and something bad is really afoot. What's interesting to me is there's some sort of non-confidential, non-salacious, non-problematic things that could become known. We could know, for example, as I've been mentioning for a couple of days, how long the Mueller report is. I think it would be useful information because it would give us a sense of how detailed Mueller was and how detailed he was in the presentation of what he found in his thorough investigation. I'd like to know also the relative length of the collusion section as compared to the obstruction section. I'd like to know are there attachments. And I think those things could become public without damage to any other principle or interest. I've said for the last couple of days something that I think will not happen, but I think it's a point worth making, that to the extent you're worried about classified information or grand jury material, that those things are less likely to be in the obstruction section. Because it looks like a lot of that investigation took place through voluntary interviews and public statements and the like. So if it's possible, to the extent that section becomes available to be made public more quickly than the other, then it should be. We shouldn't have to wait if there's a, a holdup with respect to some bit of classified information with respect to some small part of the report. You don't want the whole report to be delayed. Now, that's wishful thinking on my part, because obviously there's, a, there's again, a political and optics reason not to put forward fully the stuff that is most damaging to the president in what is probably a long report. You're going to want to put forth the stuff that's positive and favorable to the president before you put out the other stuff, or at least put them all out at the same time. So it may be wishful thinking on my part, but I think you know there should be a clamor for getting, at a minimum, and as quickly as possible, the portion of the report that lays out what is undoubtedly significant evidence that the president may have obstructed justice, even though Bob Mueller didn't make an ultimate conclusion about the commission of a crime. Now, it turns out that in significant measure, the principal findings of the Mueller report, according to Bill Barr, were favorable to the president. So there was a political motivation for putting out at least some document first. I think if tables were turned and it was a, you know, it was a Democratic president, a Democratic administration, and there was an investigation of the president, that there is value and there is merit in putting something out quickly so people have the basic outlines. The problem is if there is, as you suggest, a long delay between the quick summary that is written in a way favorable to the president and the full disclosure of the entire document. And I had speculated before on this show, I think, that if the report was overall favorable to the president, that Bill Barr and others would be running to Congress to disclose it so that the world could see that it was good for the president. Now, I revised that a little bit because I realized it's in some ways you know, a better tactic when the report is favorable to the president in some respects, and particularly on the collusion point, to put out a short summary that says everything is great. And on the obstruction point, even though Bob Mueller didn't decide it, I've decided it, and the president is exonerated. And now let that sit for a while and be imprinted on the brains of lots of people before the messier, more troublesome, more problematic, fuller details 
of the Mueller report become known. And there becomes a political and optics motivation to delay for a bit, because the only thing we have to talk about is this sort of nice, fairly positive letter that summarizes the Mueller report for the president. I hope that's not the case. And I hope that people are still moving with great speed to release more of it. But I think you're right to be worried. And I am too. Because the story unfolds with respect to the Mueller report and the bar summary and all sorts of other things. I talked about it at great length with Ann Milgram on Cafe Insider. And we'll continue to talk about it next week. And I'm sure the week after and the week after that. So if you haven't yet, sign up at cafe.com slash insider. This next question is in an email from listener Brandon, who says, congrats on the book being released. It was just announced today that your old office charged Michael Avenatti with extortion. I read that he was charged less than an hour after he tweeted about a press conference he was holding the next day relating to Nike and wanted to get your inside take on how much you think that tweet impacted the speed at which your old office brought charges against him. Thanks. Love the show and can't wait to hear more to come. So, you know, I don't know. I'm not on the inside of that office anymore. But what was interesting to me, not having delved into the charges to any great degree yet, is that Michael Avenatti appears not to have been arrested in the early morning, pre-dawn, as usually happens when it's a surprise arrest, nor was he allowed to surrender in the kind of case where the subject or target is aware of the ongoing investigation. It was a midday arrest, which seems to indicate that maybe there's something to your point, that it was an ongoing crime, that they were poised to arrest and charge. They did that in coordination with the U.S. Attorney's Office in California, where he was also charged with serious federal crimes, and that it was, you know, they were really in the heat of an investigation as opposed to having finished an investigation, you know, waited some period of time before they could get their ducks in a row. But it was it was an ongoing, in-the-moment type of arrest, and maybe they were looking for a few remaining bits of evidence, including the tweet that he sent publicly about the press conference that he was holding over the head of Nike in order to extort what looks like tens of millions of dollars. I may have more to say about the case as it unfolds in in the upcoming weeks, but it just shows that once again that the Southern District doesn't countenance bad conduct if it becomes aware of it. You know, it's just it's an interesting footnote, but not of any consequence or moment. I don't think that the Southern District was also overseeing the prosecution of Michael Cohen and got a guilty plea from him when one of the other people, sort of, who uh, had a stake and an interest in that prosecution, was Stormy Daniels, to whom a payoff was made who was represented in that case by Michael Avenatti. Just because you're a lawyer representing someone who provides information in connection with a criminal case doesn't immunize you if you commit a crime as well. Some people have asked, how much trouble is Michael Avenatti in? And my answer is, a lot. These are serious charges. They don't mess around. And you have two U.S. attorney's offices charging serious federal crimes. I think Michael Avenatti is in a lot of trouble. Then there's sort of an interesting irony that has no legal consequence. It's just sort of an interesting thing to observe in this crazy year that is 2019 is the similarity in the, in the thuggishness of the conversations that we have heard recorded on the part of now both Michael Cohen and Michael Avenatti. The latter who accused the former of being a thug. Some irony there, given the charges. This next question comes from Twitter user Maddie Sleeves. At Preet Bharara, I'm about six hours from finishing your audiobook, hashtag doing justice. That's about two to three round trips to work and back and I'm really enjoying it. Any chance you're about two to three days from publishing another book? Hashtag Aspreet. The answer to that question is no. <laughs> is absolutely no. Thanks for buying the audiobook. I hope you're enjoying it. And uh, I'll let you know when the next book is ready. I think it's going to be a while. 
My guest this week is Steve Martin. He, as I say in my book, is one of my favorite people. He and I met when he was appointed to oversee reform efforts at the New York City jail system known as Rikers Island. SDNY became deeply involved in that effort, which is still ongoing. Steve has worked in and around prisons since the early 1970s, when he was a correction officer in Texas, including on death row. He went on to become the general counsel of the Texas Department of Corrections. He now serves as a smart and thoughtful reformer, helping correctional facilities solve their epidemics of violence and excessive force. I speak with him about his important work on the front lines of mass incarceration and his hopes for change in what is often a brutal and inhumane system. That's coming up. Stay tuned. How much time do you think attorneys spend managing their legal practices, clients, and cases? As an attorney myself, I know that the answer is a lot. Thankfully, there's a better way, with Clio. Clio is the secure cloud-based legal software that makes managing and growing your firm easier. Clio automates the tedious tasks that take up your valuable time, like generating bills, maintaining endless documents, and keeping cases organized. Clio allows you to focus on the things that actually matter. Clio's easy-to-use interface makes you more productive and helps you get paid faster. And Clio's mobile app lets you access your files from wherever you are. Clio is trusted by over 150,000 legal professionals and approved by 66 bar associations and law societies worldwide. I even spoke at Clio's cloud conference a few years back. So take your law firm to the next level with Clio. Go to clio.com preet to start your free trial. No credit card required and get a special offer. That's clio.com slash preet. C-L-I-O slash preet. If you're trying to be a smarter version of yourself, you need to start watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. There's a wealth of information available on the streaming service from some of the best professors across a huge range of interests. Enjoy lectures on topics like Athenian democracy, nuclear physics, Winston Churchill, forensics, and more. You'll learn so much from The Great Courses Plus, even about topics you think you know. They even have a course on investigating American presidents. Speaking of topics you think you know, this course offers a nonpartisan historical look at what happens when presidents are accused of abusing their power. Because what we're living through is unique, but we can learn from what's come before. Or if you're just totally saturated and all you can handle is me talking about the news, try a course like How to Paint or Everyday Guide to Wine. Whatever you want to study, you'll love The Great Courses Plus, and we have a special, limited-time offer. Get a free trial, plus lock into their lowest price of $10 per month when you sign up for a three-month plan. That's 50% off the regular price. This deal is only available for a limited time, and only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash preet. Get your free trial, plus 50% off your monthly plan now, only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash preet. Steve Martin, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm just really uh, absolutely pleased to be with you, Preet. Can I start with um, a question you probably have gotten a lot, although I have never asked you this question, I don't think. How difficult has it been the confusion between Steve Martin, you, and the actor-comedian? <laughs> how much How much do you have? Do you get his mail? Well, it depends on how uh, much he's in the news with a movie or so forth, and I can recall when I was in the DA's office here in Tulsa County, 
and that's back when Steve Martin was really first on the scene. And when I would get introduced, uh, you know, to the jury panel or to the court or whatever, uh, more often than not, you know, smiles would break out among the people in the courtroom just by saying my name. <laughs> did you feel some pressure to be funny? <laughs> well, I tell you what I did. Uh, one Christmas party, my secretary gave me uh, one of those arrows. You know, he used to wear that arrow on his head. Oh, yeah. He'd come out with it. And, and so she gave me that as, as my Christmas gift. And I was going down to the courtroom later that afternoon, and one of my colleagues uh, said, a, well, a former DA was on the bench, and said, I will dare you to go down to that courtroom today with that arrow in your head. <laughs> and? and? And even though he, the judge was a colleague and probably would have taken it well, I chickened out at the very last moment. <laughs> I think that's probably wise. You were, you were young... <laughs> A young assistant back then. Yeah, I did not want tales told about uh, me taking the court less than serious. So, I should probably set the scene a little bit for how we know each other. Uh, and that was when, a few years ago, when I was still the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, my office joined a lawsuit against the city of New York and the Department of Corrections uh, with respect to the use of force against adolescents at Rikers Island, which is a jail complex that I think is of some notoriety around the country, but it's a jail complex in New York City and is part of the, the settlement and the consent decree ordered by the court. The court imposed a monitor, if you don't mind being called someone who was imposed on someone else, right? <laughs> a monitor on Rikers Island to make sure that they were going to be meeting you know, the milestones that they were supposed to be meeting and the improvements and to see if there were ways to bring down the cycle of violence at Rikers Island, which is pretty extreme and remains a big problem, which we'll get into later. And then I had the pleasure of meeting you and your team and sitting down every once in a while on a regular basis to talk about how we might make Rikers Island better and how we might think about prison. And And you are really one of the people who caused me to think more deeply than I ever had before about what it means to have a humane prison system and a humane jail system. And, and so before I do anything else, I will wax poetic about your service, which is not something I usually do about guests. But you've spent how many, how many decades now on the issue of prisons? I'm in my 46th year uh, working in the prison jail confinement setting. So that's a long time. It and, is. And you've done it, it as, as a correction officer. You've done it as a, as a legal officer. You've done it as an outside sort of monitor and expert, which is in many ways thankless work unglorified work, but really important and out of sight for a lot of people in this country who don't fully appreciate that everyone should care about how we treat people in prison, even prosecutors who send a lot of people to prison. That was my job for a long time. It doesn't mean that the Constitution and its protections end at the prison wall. So thank you for your service on this, and, and thanks for joining us today. Well, and, and let me just make one responsive comment to that. Uh, I think it's important for the listeners to realize how rare it is that a sitting U.S. attorney of one of the largest offices in the, the U.S. would develop and then maintain a detailed interest in a matter such as the Rockers Island litigation. I have been so impressed from the moment you and I first met with how you approach this, uh, not in a passing way, but in a very substantive 
way, and it has it made just quite frankly it made a huge, critically important difference in how that case uh, came to be, how it is currently occurring, and and hopefully uh, moving towards uh, some real substantive reform. Well, thank thanks, Steve. Thank you, and I, I will say, look, I miss I miss working people on the show here all the time that I miss working with my former colleagues in the office and the agents and the cops, but people like you also, I think about from time to time. And I'm fortunate enough to have a platform. I get to talk to you still yes, and yes. other people, other people get to listen now <laughs> right. to some of the things you've told me over the years. So let's, let's get okay. to that. Can I, let me start with a very, very basic question. Why do we have prisons? Are they necessary? Well, the, the short answer is yes. They're necessary in the sense that there is a carceral function in most modern day societies in which certain people for safety purposes, uh, deterrence, incapacitation, need physical confinement separate from the free world population. You can also address it from a perspective of justice retribution. I guess well, that's what we make it into discussion on mass incarceration. Those people that require confinement that we would agree safety purposes are just the severity of, of, of their crimes are far, far, far fewer <laughs> than what we do lock up in this country. Yeah, so we imprison too much, but there are people, because of their conduct, their willing and willful conduct, have to be incarcerated in some way. So let's, let's talk about what, what that means. And from time to time, I think, having focused on these issues and having you know, lived life and read books, uh, particular books about these issues, that you're talking about an impossible situation, no matter how well-trained people are, no matter how well-intentioned people are, you have people in cells whose liberty has been taken away from them, and then you have other people responsible for maintaining discipline and maintaining the denial of liberty. And is there any universe in which you can hope for that to be a lovely and peaceful and relaxing environment? Is that just an impossibility? And, and the one thing I want to just throw out there and you and I have talked about this. We talk not only about the sort of the mundane, everyday operational issues of how prisons function, but also sort of the psychology of a correction officer and an inmate. And there's the famous study that you know as well as anyone, some of which has been criticized in recent years, but the, the famous Stanford prison experiment. Professor Zimbardo of Stanford took a number of Stanford students, randomly assigned some to be guards, randomly assigned others to be inmates, and he tried to simulate sort of a, a guard-inmate situation. And according to his writing, they had to abandon the experiment very early because people started to engage in awful behavior. The guards started to behave in, in awful dehumanizing behavior. So is it inevitable that prison and confinement circumstances are going to be awful? The short answer uh, is yes. You know, we talk in terms of mass incarceration, or incarceration, let's, let's drop the mass. I mean, let's just talk about incarceration. Uh, we typically talk about it in terms of uh, its cost-benefit to society, its impact on minorities, on the poor. So there are all kinds of public policy issues in which we debate with incarceration. You know, but what is rarely talked about is how literally debilitating actual confinement is. It is so often cruel, it's so often brutal, it's so often violent, 
and it's always unforgiving. And just let me illustrate. The New York City jails in a typical 12-month period will have in excess of 5,000 staff incidents of force. They will also have in excess of 5,000 inmate on inmate assaults. That's 10,000 events in a 12-month period in which there are varying levels of violence. Another example, jail suicides. The leading cause of death in jails is suicide. The rate of jail suicides is, most recent study I've reviewed, is 50 per 100,000. In the free world society, it is 12 or 13 per 100,000. Another example, correctional officers in the state of California, and they are finding that the incidence of PTSD with correctional officers is, is high or similar to returning veterans from Afghanistan. So that illustrates it's not only debilitating from the incarcerated person's perspective, it can be debilitating from the staff perspective. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you raised that because there's a quote that has stuck with me by Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was once upon a time a billionaire in Russia and he was then imprisoned for 10 years. And he wrote a book called My Fellow Prisoners. And I talk about this in my own book, Doing Justice, which, quick plug, you can all buy now. But uh, Khodorkovsky said this, that, that's very relevant to what you just said. He said, quote, prison has a terrible effect on the majority of both prisoners and guards. It's not yet clear, in fact, which group is affected more. Society has to do something about this human tragedy. And for a start, people need to know about it. How hard is it to be a prison guard or correction officer? Well, having had the experience at a maximum security prison in Texas as a young man, 21, 22 years old, I entered that job almost from a social work standpoint, in other words, rehabilitation, uh, social work, trying to be involved in, in improving the lives of someone around me. When I left there after 12 months, I, I found myself different than when I started, different in the sense that I was I dealt in a more severe fashion, uh, typically, with inmates. I found myself not trusting, not believing. Uh, in other words, the human relationship factor deteriorated markedly. Do you remember what you said to me once? You said to me once, I could have risen high, talking about the prison where you work, you said, I could have risen high if I had been more willing to kick ass indiscriminately. Yes, there's no question. I can recall one of my early experiences as an inmate that had assaulted a lieutenant was beaten down rather badly. He was brought out into the hall so they could demonstrate to all other inmates this is what happens. And, and I can recall one of my colleagues said, boss, how come you didn't get in on that? Now, the boss said that to me, had got in on that, and we were kind of contemporaries, and he achieved rank, you know, while I was there. In other words, he was promoted, and then he was promoted to lieutenant because he, he would, so to speak, be willing to mix it up uh, with inmates. That's just the way the system operated. 
so you felt like a, a worse person after doing that for a year? I did. I, I really I explored this and with a thesis project because I didn't particularly like what I had become when at the end of that tenure. I struggled with the conflict of, of why you know, I wanted to be a good officer. I even wanted to achieve some uh, promotion in rank. When you walk away from something like that, you walk away at best questioning the experience, if not struggling with the conflict of, of how you conducted yourself. I guess the question is, is it inherently the case that working at a job like that that's so difficult and where you're, you're essentially, you know, by order of law, subjugating other people, even though it's necessary and, and appropriate and can be just, what kind of a person does not feel worse? In other words, is, do we ask too much of human beings who are asked to become prison guards? I think we do when we are operating with what I refer to as the punishment model, which began to flourish under the Law and Order Administration of President Nixon through the 70s and has flourished over a number of years, that when you place the emphasis on control measures, that, that is physical control measures, I call it caretaking, and that's dominated by physical hardware, that's dominated by weaponry, that's dominated by tactics and so forth. When you have that setting, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like a, a war zone, or can be. So yeah, when you have that dominant model in your administration of justice, in, 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 in your prison facilities, it is almost asking the impossible, because what's going to happen is one of two things. You can get people that flourish in that, that are violent themselves, or you're going to get people that cannot tolerate that because of the violence. Well, it's those people that should be allowed to flourish in a confinement operation. You look at the turnover rates uh, in some of these places. It's just unbelievable. So you end up with people that stay there that maybe don't have <laughs> the skill set uh, to manage others in a way that reduces violence, that... Uh, programs inmates, that encourages inmates, that uh, prepares inmates. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, if you set it up as a battlefield, you can expect a battle. Yeah, exactly. And so, so how should it be set up? Well, it should be set up, number one, I think, where the arrest decision, the decision to prosecute, the decision to sentence, those actors almost have to relearn what, in my view, what justice administration is. It is to identify those that require the serious confinement, incarceration, and, and to differentiate between those folks and folks that if we had the appropriate uh, services, community services, that diversion, they're receptive to being in an appropriate program for mental health disorders or for addiction or whatever it is. And the first question, should be, in my view, can we manage this offender in the community? Can we manage this offender without the expensive incarceration uh, that brings a whole load of other issues? But that's not the dominant uh, approach. And you only need to look at the incarceration rates in the U.S., uh, in my view, that, that supports that default position of locking them up, where some, some systems that have very, very low incarceration rates 
they look at it as a true failure in their justice system when they have to lock somebody up. We look at it so often, prosecutors do, and even judges, as a success. If I get 30 years for this person, if I get 10 years for this person, or if I get life for this person, or if I get a death sentence as a success, that's a failure. That's a failure. But, but that doesn't necessarily answer the question of then, you know, even if you have a smaller population, I think, you know, I agree with that and I prosecuted people for years. I think there should be a smaller, a much smaller prison population. But given the, you know, any kind of prison population is part of the problem that on the one hand, you, uh, as, a, as a prison guard, as, as management there, you're viewing these people as potentially dangerous, you know, especially if you've been convicted of, of serious crimes in your maximum security, like where you worked. And on the other hand, there should be a policy prescription not to slip into dehumanizing them because they are people. They're going to, many of them get out one day. They're human beings. But a lot of the features of prison life, not even necessarily intentionally dehumanize them, like the uniform and the, uh, the curfews. And I don't know, you, you could probably list a whole bunch more. You can minimize those or lessen those effects of confinement, of the pains of imprisonment as one uh, world-renowned sociologist called it uh, years ago, uh, you know, lack of goods and services and, you know, the uniforms and so forth. And that there are systems that attempt to do that. And, and that does have an ameliorative impact on confinement, no question. But confinement's confinement. <laughs> I mean, when you're separated 24-7 from your family, friends, and so forth, that is going to have, as I said earlier in this conversation, at best, a debilitating effect. Yeah, but the problem with some of the mitigating things, and I've, I saw this at Rikers and I've seen this in other places, that some of the things that might be useful, like programs, uh, training, education, exercise, sports inside the prison— all those things that are outlets for people and allow them to build skills so when they come out, they can reintegrate into society. All those things, on the one hand, seem to me to be very reasonable. But then there's a thrust of, of opinion on the part of maybe some correction officers and also politicians who think that's coddling and you're being too soft on these folks and hard time is supposed to be hard time. One of the best ways to make sure that there's less prison violence, someone who used to be a correction officer told me this, is to have, you know, exercise equipment. But there's hostility to that because why should they have a free gym when the correction officer has to go pay for a gym membership? Or why should they be able to get online classes in history and geography and earn a degree when the correction officer can't? How, how do you get around that sort of resentment, you know, and bad feeling? Well, I refer to that as populist penal policy. Uh, how in the world are, uh, do we afford them access to college courses when I, uh, as an officer, can't do that. And that's obviously a very short-sighted mentality, but it is a pervasive mentality in some systems. And you do it through uh, leadership from the top down with uh, directors, commissioners, wardens that actually set uh, a bar of accountability. And part of that accountability is not and your line staff not engaging in that populist, shallow, counterproductive type of uh, behavior. But if left unchecked or even encouraged, then you end up with some systems that are indeed 
uh, operating in violation of the Constitution because of excessive force or other constitutional uh, issues. Yeah, I mean, it's just a cycle and it becomes very difficult to break. You spent uh, time working maybe in the hardest place it must be to work in any prison system on death row in, of all places, Texas. What was that like? Well, it was an extremely, relatively speaking, oppressive setting at the time. This was 1972 because the death row inmates in Texas at that time literally were locked up virtually 24 hours a day in a approximately five by eight cell. Uh, So it was about 40 square feet, which is roughly the size of an American bathroom. And they would be out of cell maybe three times a week for a short exercise period or to get their hair cut. When you keep, you know, a body of men, uh, were 42, I believe, on death row at that time in 1972, locked up in that type of setting with no programming, very, very limited property, and five by eight foot cells 24 hours a day, you end up with basically people that atrophy, people that go crazy, people that give up, <laughs> people that... And also engage in further violence because they have nothing to lose. Exactly, yeah. And that's, that's the way death rows were operated at that point. Uh, Texas was not uh, an outlier by, by any means. Uh, death row prisoners were just viewed as requiring that type of uh, ultra-high uh, security. Even though it's the case, even back then, and I would have to go back and research, but it was still a number of years of being on death row before there was either a commutation or actually executed. Yes, yes. Uh, One of the things that I I guess uh, timing dictates so much what we do, I guess, but I was actually working death row in Texas when Furman v. Georgia was handed down. Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court case, as you know, that declared uh, the manner in which it was employed at that time was unconstitutional. So we commuted, or say we, the state commuted the sentences of those inmates on death row. And I happened to have been able to observe them coming out off of death row into the regular general population. And the thing that struck me is some of these inmates are among the best inmates we have here at the Ellis Prison Farm. <laughs> they integrated into the general population. Why do you think that why do you think that is? How were they received by everyone else? Sort of um you guys are the baddest guys here or we're afraid of you or no, no, because uh, convicts, no convicts. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sure some of them, there were a few of them that really had kind of extreme criminal histories or, or their capital offense was extreme that had high notoriety and, and we, uh, I think, segregated. But but your, your typical death row inmate, I've always told people I can go to any high max prison in a large state, say California, uh, Michigan, New York, and immediately identify individuals in the general population that are much more dangerous and threatening than your typical death row inmate. What's the giveaway on that? Well, so many death row prisoners uh, do not have, uh, I wouldn't say so many, any number of them don't have, you know, the career criminal type of lifestyles, uh, and some of them are simply situationally violent. I mean, there are all kinds of factors that, plus, this is the vagaries of the application of, the, of capital punishment. As, as you know, as a prosecutor, 
whether one is prosecuted as a capital case is is oftentimes subject to where the offense occurred, what the, pros, the prosecutor his view, whether there's good counsel. Uh, there's so right, many all sorts of things. Yeah, there's so many factors that dictate that that you cannot assume, or I've never assumed that because you're a capital offender that you are somehow a more constant danger than many other prisoners that are not capital offenders, simply put. So you actually had a particular role at some point in the administration of the death penalty, did you not? I did, yes. Explain that because that sounds like a very difficult thing to do. Well, the then director of the Texas prison system, of course, presided over executions in Texas. He had come from California, career uh, corrections professional from California, Ray Percunier was his name, and had had a bad experience uh, with an execution in California in which uh, a commutation or a stay of execution was delayed and the prisoner was executed. Wait, meaning, meaning that it was a premature execution? Yes, yes. And so when he came to Texas, the setup in Texas was the executioner was behind a one-way mirror with the uh, execution set up, the IVs into the person to be executed through a little slot. Uh, and there was also a phone in that room with the executioner. So the director asked that, that I basically maintain, be present with the executioner and maintain an open line from the governor's office uh, or the attorney general's office in case any stays, et cetera, came in so they could that hookup went immediately to me with the executioner so it could be stopped. In other words, you didn't have to go through several layers of phone calls or uh, going through doors. I mean, I was back there with an open line just as the execution was to embark. And the last thing I would ask is any stays, commutations, or, or whatever. And that's, I'd turn to the executioner uh, and then uh, the warden who actually okayed it. Uh, but but you, you were basically the person, one of the last people to give the green light. Yes, the warden, the warden actually did it because uh, we would open the door and I would nod to the warden and the warden uh, actually presided and, and uh, actually carried that out. And how many times did you do that? Uh, four. And how did that feel? Well, first ones, you know, you're, it's a new experience like anything. You don't know really what to make of it uh, in, in terms of morality or in terms of justice, in terms of whatever. <laughs> so so I, I looked at it, even at the time, I, I was ambivalent about the death penalty. I had not taken a position either way, but I, was, I, I certainly questioned. So during that time, I justified it by simply saying, I'm in a position to stop the execution should it need to be stopped. So I, that, that's how I, kind of my shorthand way of saying, of making, giving me, myself a comfort zone to be involved in such process. So that, that, that took me through the first few. Then at some point you decided that you could no longer favor the death penalty. Yeah, it, it was a particular uh, uh, capital offender by the name of uh, Doyle Skillern that the director and I, before each, each execution, would go back to the staging area but before the inmate was actually put on the gurney just to have a, a word <laughs> the director thought that was important and i would accompany the director back to do that and when we went to have that 
conferring with Skellern, he was in a very, very calm frame of mind and actually thanked us and showed his appreciation for uh, the director having started a quite an innovative program at the time of bringing inmates out of their cells on death row to engage in productive work. And it's called the Work Capable Program. And it is a very, very, very successful cutting-edge program in American Corrections at the time where you brought people off the row during the day just like any other inmate. But before that program was developed, a predecessor of the director actually put them in the death, death row prisoners for a while most of them in general population. And when the new director, Percunier, came, said, oh, we, we can't do that uh, because first time we have one of these guys escape, the legislature and the governor, everybody else can be all over me. So we had to pull them out of the general population, even though they were doing quite well. Well, when we did that, the director said, I want to go out, allow the death row population to pick four or five death row inmates as a delegation. I'll have them brought up. Uh, we'll go out and I'm going to look them you know, eye to eye, face to face, and tell him why they were pulled out general population. He, he did, in fact, do that. I was with him uh, during that meeting, and he committed to trying to develop some program, which he ultimately did. But anyway, Skiller, and the last thing he said was, you'll never know uh, how much that meant to the death row inmates that you looked us in the eye, even though you'd pulled us, and we were all upset that you'd pulled us out of general population and put us back on death row, that you actually sat down, looked us in the eye, and, and told us. And, and then committed and carried out. So the last thing he said was, was to thank you and others for a kindness that you gave them in the prison. That's, that's the last thing he ever said. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so I, I actually had to execute the, the return of the death warrant. As a chief lawyer for the system, I would go back to the office after the execution and actually complete the warrant. And when I went back after Skellern's execution, I said, you know, I don't even know what he did. <laughs> I don't know anything about him, and we just took his life. And I kind of said, you know, I, I should know something about him. So I, I had his file, prison file, and I examined it, spent almost the rest of the—we would execute at midnight, so— uh, we were probably through with the execution by 12.30 or so, and I, was, I spent a good part of several hours going through his file and learned that he was a co-defendant and that his co-defendant at the time that we executed him was actually out of prison because he, in which terms you understand, won the race to the courthouse. He was the first to flip, and to cop a plea, was sentenced, and then and that matter even more of concern to me, he was a shooter. So I sat there and said, okay, here we have just executed only one of the two principles. And the principle that probably, depending on how you look at it, had less culpability while his co-defendant is on the streets. And I said, something is a foul with a system that operates in this manner. And so I uh, began really, really questioning uh, my role, my participation, and ultimately, on a variety of grounds, uh, came to believe that the death penalty could not fairly and or morally uh, be administered to people. Do you have hope for the future on both the issue of who gets incarcerated and how many mass incarceration, and also how we treat people in 
confinement? I do, but we've got to change you know, the, the calculus or the paradigm of how we view the confinement experience. And in fact, one of your colleagues at NYU, a world-renowned social theorist and criminologist by the name of David Garland, in his seminal work, Punishment in Modern Society, says the following. And, and this is one of the most, uh, to me, important uh, passages in my field because it captures what is so often lost in the politics, even among the professionals, the actors in the criminal justice system. Garland says, because the public does not hear the anguish of prisoners and their families, because the discourse of the press and of popular criminology presents offenders as different and less than fully human, and because penal violence is generally sanitized, situational, or of low visibility, the conflict between our civilized sensibilities and the often brutal routines of punishment is minimized and made more tolerable. Modern penality is thus institutionally ordered and discursively represented in ways which deny the violence which continues to inherit in its practices. I carry that around with me because it so eloquently captures uh, until the citizen that today talks about, well, why should we give him three meals or why should he complain about three meals? He won't stay in prison because he gets the, until that person <laughs> understands that's not the typical inmate. The typical inmate is exposed, as I said, to an unforgiving setting in which violence can erupt and often does at any moment over the most inconsequential matters or can be the product of putting mentally disordered prisoners with prisoners that, that uh, take advantage of those uh, sorts or whatever. So the average citizen simply does not grasp what Professor Garland has captured. If you're an inmate and you're subjected to all those rules and regulations and curfews and discipline and you see, you know, the armed guards, what does that do to your sense of fairness? And how keenly do you feel infractions on the part of the guards if you live in that environment? The typical inmate, because they are like you and I, they're humans, they're people, have a fairly good understanding and sense of fundamental fairness. Okay? They understand when they're getting screwed, in other words. They understand when they're getting a case put on them that should probably be put on the officer. Most inmates are very sensitive to being subjected to unfair treatment. And that typically, nothing good comes from that. <laughs> An inmate will either engage in reprisal, retaliation, etc. So, it's ever-present, but inmates, and, and I think we often don't understand that, fundamental fairness is still at play and must be and should be in a confinement setting. It's no less important in a confinement setting than it is on the streets. Yeah, I think people forget. They think if you're a bad person and you have screwed other people, maybe 
you don't have a sense of whether or not you're being treated unfairly. Sounds like a paradox, but it's not. Or because you have treated people unfairly or taken advantage of people, we can do that to you. Well, that's what separates, in my view, that's what a public trust is. Officers and staff are not permitted to embrace that. In fact, it's counter to the Constitution. It's counter to law. We are not permitted that. Uh, and, and anybody that engages in that should not be in, in a confinement setting. Yeah, I wonder also if our psychology study is is getting better. I mean, people forget this also, that you know some regimes of punishment and incarceration were begun in good faith, right? The word penitentiary, which people associate with harsh time, comes from the word penitent. The idea being that you spend all your time alone and you reflect on your sins, and that automatically rehabilitates you when you come out. So it was not intended to be uh, as harsh as we in, in modern times understand solitary confinement to be. And, and we're, we're making some progress based on some of the work that we have done on taking away the imposition of solitary confinement with respect to uh, adolescents and young people. Do you think we're getting better in that regard also? I mean, that, that's a good uh, first step uh, in the First Step Act that was just passed is they put limitations on the placement of juveniles in solitary confinement. But that is, uh, well, while that, I, I fully support that. I mean, there's just no question <laughs> that's an advancement. We still have across American prisons large, large numbers of individuals locked up in what could be characterized as solitary confinement. I, I use other terms. I use isolation, segregation, separation, but in essence, it, it, it's commonly referred to as solitary. So by no means does the provision in the Fair First Step Act that's applicable to juveniles <laughs> begin to solve a much, much larger problem in terms of sheer numbers and systems. Most of the work you've done has been in public facilities? Yes. Do you have a view on private prisons? Oh, I do. For profit and whether that's <laughs> god awful or not? Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> okay. What is it? In fact, uh, I, I want to commend uh, your listeners that are interested in this subject, privatization, to go out and buy a book that was just published. Uh, they can buy your book and this book at the same time. You first buy my book, then buy this other book. Exactly. Uh, or get them in tandem. It's called American Prisons, A Reporter's Journey into the Business of Punishment uh, by Shane Byer. This is a reporter that uh, went to and applied for a position with the Corrections Corp of America, uh, the, one of the largest private corporations in, in, in America, and, and went to work at a facility in Louisiana. And this book chronicles his experiences. And his experiences were very consistent with mine over many years of having investigated and inspected uh, facilities run by private operators. The thing that everyone's got to keep in mind about private prisons is they are simply profit-driven. 70 to 80 percent of the cost of operating any confinement operations staff and probably the second most costly thing is provision of medical health care services. If you look at the performance of private operators over the years since it has come into play in the 1980s, although in the modern times, now we can go back, it was in play uh, post-Civil War too, but what you see is 
staff almost always is short-staffed. They have utterly high turnover in these facilities. They pay a minimum wage or very low wages in the medical health care services because they're very expensive or, charitably put, usually lean if non-existent. And that, that's one of the reasons the privates are aggressively moving into the immigration detention business. Because there's a lot more of that business now. Well, well there's, there's a lot of it, but, but those aren't difficult inmates to manage. So they can make high profits with and operate more successfully with lean staff. And because they are detainees and the, uh, they're more short-term detention, medical health care is not as critical as it is in a long-term prison. So it, it, it is the perfect situation for the privates, and that's why they've aggressively moved into that arena. But make no mistake, and I've had direct, direct experience from the corporate side with this, is profit always trumps performance. It just simply does. If there is a choice between something eroding their profits and providing an essential or better service, it's been my experience they opt for that choice that does not erode profits. And there's also an argument to be made that one of the reasons they're getting more of that business is there's a very serious political lobbying effort and donation effort. So it, it's hard to understand if it's related to performance and efficiency and or morality or simply people are feeding coffers of politicians who are prepared to allow these things to happen. You look at the private prison lobby and their contributions, it's just off the scale. I can recall I had just left the Texas prison system in 1985 when CCA came into Texas to do business. And the minute they hit town, they had snapped up every major premier lobbyist in Austin. <laughs> I could not believe when I was uh, learned, of, oh, yeah, they had this person, they had that person. They had them all. And, and then the contributions they started making to political candidates uh, – you know, it was just uh, off scale. And, of course, that's the reason they're an industry leader, too. First Step Act, you feel that that will make a difference in the world that you care about? Well, I, the short answer, well, I'd put it this way. I've heard that this characterized as bringing about sweeping change and overhaul of the criminal justice system. Uh, by no standard is that true. Sweeping changes, uh, no. Overhaul, no. Incremental reform, a bit, yes. And and I, I certainly favor virtually all the provisions of the First Step Act. because. What's your favorite one? Well, there's two uh, that are my favorite because— Okay, you can have two. Because what they what they say about the state of corrections. One is a provision of free sanitary napkins to uh, incarcerated women in prison. Because what that tells me about the state of corrections in America, when Congress has to mandate, has to pass a law to provide feminine hygiene products to an incarcerated person, what does that say about the state of corrections? In any well-run correctional system. It should be managed in a way where essential services are provided, regardless of whether 
there is a law because that's called the human condition. That's uh, called uh, being humane. The second is the prohibition of shackling pregnant prisoners. I had direct experience with that monitoring in New York City uh, a number of years ago. And I just never saw a situation where that was necessary because you could always have an officer stationed and ready to act uh, if necessary. So the thing that I would probably leave you with on the first step act is this, that it is criminal justice reform often does, and I've I've been on sentencing commissions, I've I've been involved in this uh, for my career, is they address reforms at the back end. And and, and most of the First Step Act are what we refer to as back-end reforms. They do not address front-end reforms, such as pervasive sentencing disparity. It exists in the federal system. In, In fact, the average sentence length, and this is a 2017, studies showed that African Americans have almost twice the sentence length than their counterpart whites. So you've got two things operating here. Number one, the incarceration rate for African Americans is substantially higher than their white counterparts. So they go to prison more often. And when they go, they go for longer terms. That's a double whammy. And until reform starts addressing these population drivers, (laughs) yeah, uh, that sentencing disparity can produce, the numbers will may go down a bit, but between new commitments and the high rates of recidivism, which we have, you're going to have, it's going to be a growth industry. I mean, five out of six inmates released from prison, this is a, a more real recent study by the Bureau of Justice, five of six inmates reoffend within nine years seven of 10 within three years. So if we are recycling at those levels, combined again with new commitments and prosecutors and courts that that default to prison, things aren't going to change appreciably. We can make conditions better, and that's what the First Step Act does in limiting solitary confinement for juveniles, uh, compassionate release for elderly offenders, uh, home confinement for low-risk offenders. Those are back-end reforms, and I support them, enthusiastically do. But anybody that believes that this is a monumental reform or sweeping reform simply doesn't understand the business. Now, it's political rhetoric is what it is. I think for some people, you know, change and reform is uh, so long in coming and so uncommon and rare that if there's something to celebrate, they want to celebrate it. And the fact that you can get on any issue— <laughs> Democrats and Republicans and people from other sides of the spectrum to agree on something, even if it's from different incentives, you know, cost versus morality or or whatever the reason, to have some consensus on something gives people some hope. I agree with you that it doesn't do nearly as much as it as it could. Yeah, and that's that's the the most positive thing about this is it can inspire other jurisdictions, state jurisdictions, uh, to do more, and it hopefully will literally be only the first step in other words there'll be a second step and there'll be but i fear that you know you tie a a ribbon around this package of reform and everybody moves on to other issues and they say no we we took care of the criminal justice issue we took plus as you well know preet uh this only applies to federal prisoners which is which is a minority of prisoners well 92 percent of all people incarcerated are incarcerated in state jurisdictions so this affects a relatively small percentage of the total 
incarcerated population in the U.S. Steve, it's been a pleasure talking to you. There's so many more things to discuss. I hope we can have you back. Uh, anytime, Breach, you know, I'll be there. Thanks, and thanks for your service, sir. Thank you. As you all know, my book, Doing Justice, was finally published. I know I've talked about the book on the podcast before. The last podcast was about the book, but now you can hear some of the actual text. Today, I'm sharing an excerpt from my audiobook where I discuss why justice sometimes requires a prosecutor to walk away from a case without bringing charges, even if it's a long and grueling investigation, which seems to have particular relevance this week. To listen to the rest of the book or get a copy in any format you like, head to doingjusticebook.com. And now, from Doing Justice. Investigations, once begun, take on a life of their own. They develop a kind of momentum, even when the destination is far from clear or certain. Once an inquiry is opened, all sorts of things are set in motion. Personnel are assigned, shifts are set, lists are made. A process begins. Often, an investigative plan is developed and even written down or typed up. Agents fan out. They serve subpoenas, surveil locations, search records, tap phones, approach witnesses. They may scorch the earth. That frenzy of activity is not just sound and fury. It signifies something. It is the concrete, outward manifestation of an urgent search for truth and accountability. It is the groaning, real-world machinery of the justice process. But what often accompanies all this investigative action and forward motion is a dangerous psychological momentum. Because while all this activity is going on, whether the leads are panning out or usable evidence is materializing, something else is happening too. Investments are being made, and expectations are being set. Law enforcement agencies are like Wall Street in one way. They want a return on their investment. It's only natural. Human beings want their efforts to amount to something. We desperately want something to show for all our work. No one wants to be Sisyphus. A farmer may love tending to his crops, but he lives for the harvest. Law enforcement agents, however, are not Wall Street investors or farmers. Profit and justice are different. Justice often must suffer the loss of substantial investment because that is what justice itself demands. When a backbreaking investigation does not yield enough evidence of a crime, when it turns out that a miscreant has come up to the criminal line but not put a thieving toe over it, when everyone thinks the target probably did the deed but doubts linger, when the law in its idiocy or a court in its naivete has exempted from prosecution bad conduct that reasonable people loathe and want to punish, there is only one choice, to walk away. Walking away can be deeply and viscerally unsatisfying. But if all the raised expectations and personal investments and sunk costs sweep people toward an unjust charging decision, that is a miscarriage. There are plenty of outside accelerants pushing forward this inherent psychological momentum. When bad things happen, politicians, the press, and the public look for scalps and scapegoats. These are all contagions that can infect a fair inquiry. The fair-minded investigator stays pure and infection-free by going about her business head down, in a metaphorical hazmat suit, immune to external pressures. Imbecilic mob chants of lock her up or lock him up fall on deaf ears. Outside forces aside, 
there is sometimes an internal source of pressure that is also dangerous and inexcusable. That occurs when leaders of an institution, even inadvertently, create pressure to produce a particular result. They do this by forgetting, as I sometimes did, to make clear that they are prepared to accept that there may be no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and that this is okay because profit and justice are different. Audio excerpted courtesy Penguin Random House Audio from Doing Justice by Preet Bharara, narrated by me, Preet Bharara. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Steve Martin. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned@cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Thanks also to Claire Tide. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Stay Tuned is produced in association with Stitcher. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.